Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Are U.S. soccer fans too toxic? It's a topic of conversation that comes up every now and then, and it's something that's going to continue to be relevant as the popularity for the sport increases and the battle for the cultural identity of what actually is U.S. soccer and what it is to be a U.S. soccer fan continues to unfold. Now, the question that I have about all the toxicity is how does it actually affect the players? How does it affect what we see on the field? And to answer that question, I brought on a man who knows a little something about being a player on the field. He is a former U.S. men's national team player. He has 27 caps for the U.S. men's national team. He is a veteran of the 2006 U.S. men's national team squad. He's a player that has captained the U.S. men's national team. He is Jimmy Conrad. Jimmy, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to uh, dive into some of these topics and hopefully shed some light on the perspectives of a former player, but also someone that's transitioned into the media and also throws out some criticism of the current player pool. Yeah, so you're kind of stationed kind of w- with your legs in two pools right oh, now. Oh, I'm but... straddling the fence. You know what? It's super <laughs> comfortable here. I got my lube. It's all working for me. Yeah, and you've got some really far. I apologize. (laughs) You've got some really interesting connections to the current national team that we'll get into later. But the first thing I want to ask you is, you know, whenever players are asked about um, criticism and the noise and all that they're hearing from social media and from fans and stuff, they'll often, you know, be really guarded. They'll say that they don't read the news clippings, they don't listen to it, they just, you know, focus. I don't believe them, Jimmy. Is is, is that do the players do they have that ability to channel all that out, or, or are they hearing what's kind of coming through? No, I think they're definitely hearing. I think it takes a special person to not be able to want to be drawn into the conversation that's being had, either around the team that they play for or about their individual performance. Especially because professional athletes have have so much free time on their hands. So, okay, you go, you work hard. I mean, even if you put in like a full, full shift at the training ground, you get there at eight, okay, you're eating with the team, whatever you're doing, you're going to hit the weights, okay, then you go training, you're still home by two o'clock, you know, it's, it's an unbelievable job, but, but the, the flip side of that is that you're always under the microscope, and you're always under the spotlight and being nitpicked, and, and now I think with social media, the pile-on is a little bit different from when I was playing, uh, Twitter was around, but it wasn't as, let's say, prominent in terms yeah. of... Uh, of where the influence is and and how quickly that can change. And and you actually, in some ways, when I got criticized in the past and big soccer was around, shout out to big soccer, you would go on there just to almost find out and and, and who actually of, of the people that were, that were watching the games, who actually understood the subtlety and nuance of performances. And, and because you were evaluating not only yourself, but if they were, let's say picking on a teammate, well, I saw what that teammate did as well. And are they seeing the same things that I was seeing? And that almost, would be like, ah, I actually like what that person has to say. You wouldn't give them credit because you want to blow up their ego. And then they're all just, they, they think they should be coaching the team or whatever. But there are those instances. And now it's just harder to, 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 because there's so many different platforms where people can criticize you. It's like, oh my God, it must be incredibly overwhelming. Yeah. And you've mentioned it from the perspective of a player, but I know that as a player, you're not just kind of playing for yourself. There's like this whole community of people that are backing you. And that's one thing that we see a lot that comes up is every now and then, like, a relative of a player will, will get into the mix and start defending a player on, on social uh-huh. media. Yep, yep. Well, how does that impact uh, whenever you're getting, whenever you're, you're uh, 
getting criticized heavily from uh, just the, the community. Uh, how does that impact your own personal community, your family and your friends? Football might be over, but MLS is coming back and Champions League and European soccer are in full swing. From all the latest odds, totals, player performance props to where the next fired coach is going to land, Bet Online is the number one spot for all your sports betting needs. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive 50% off your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use promo code BELIEVE to get started. And it's not just basketball. Bet Online is your source for hockey, boxing, and UFC odds, right to the Olympic coverage, from sports right down to your favorite Vegas casino games. Bet Online is your number one online wagering destination. Bet Online, the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports and play all your favorite games. Bet Online, where the game starts. No, it definitely makes a difference. I remember taking a shot at Julian Green when he got named to the 2014 World Cup and his dad came at me um because my tweet had gotten a ton of traction and ultimately what it said as a reminder for everybody was that okay if i'm doing the math here at home we're gonna take a player with zero world cup experience over a guy who's got more world cup goals for us than any other player in the history of the program yeah that makes a lot of sense you know and so julian green's dad comes in and like hey buddy you know and, and i get it like if i was julian green's dad i would be out there ready with my fists up like, give my son a chance before you judge him, okay? He's taken whatever happened between Landon Donovan and Jurgen Klinsman has nothing really to do with Julian as a person and as a player. He just happened to be the guy that got symbolized in that. And we could actually argue that maybe Brad Davis got taken or, or Chris Wondolowski got taken over Landon as opposed to Julian Green. I mean, there are other guys that could yeah. have been targets, and Wondolowski earned his own target after that tournament, unfortunately. But, but, but it was... You know, those those types of moments where, where where family and friends are defending you, it's because nobody else is defending those. And so I get that urge to want to do it now that I have kids of my own. If somebody was picking at, picking on my kid in a way that I felt was unfair. Now, there's a line. I mean, if you're going to if going to kind of critique them in a certain space, then I can understand where that was coming from based on performance or whatever. But if you start to go cross that line, that's where I would really be like, bring it on, baby. Who wants you know, and I start to like find any holes in their game and, and attack their vulnerabilities and weaknesses. But, but, but there is a space where I think you can do that. And I thought my tweet was okay. I didn't feel like I needed to defend myself to Julian's dad, but I understand his urgency and desire to want to stand up for his son. Uh, you mentioned crossing the line and you know, a, a lot of this conversation is, is in reference to a wonderful article that the athletic just put out about um, this kind of culture of scapegoating. And they, they, um, they, 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 interviewed a bunch of players and referenced a bunch of players who have drawn the ire of U.S. men's national team fans over the years. And, you know, they start with Jonathan Bornstein. They talk about Chris Wanolowski. They talk about uh, Giassi's artist, Tim mm-hmm. Reams, mm-hmm. some of these players. Uh, this this culture of scapegoating, is that something that you, you, you agree with being associated with U.S. men's national team fan? Or you think that's overstated? Is that something that's uh, <laughs> just, just part of all national teams? Or, or how, no, how do you I th- feel about that? No, I think it's part of every team that if you love and, and, and support a team and you have passion for what's happening, you're going to have emotional takes. And that's part and parcel of being a fan of, of anything. I think my one concern for U.S. men's national team Twitter and, and anything, any accounts that are blowing up in this space, and, and it's awesome. I, I love how much thought is going behind what's happening. And I love that there, we have that type of pressure on our federation, first and foremost, uh, that, that, and, and on our coaching staff and on our player. Like, you have to perform. We expect you to perform. And before, it always felt like, well... 
it's not our number one sport. We always had that fallback, but now it's coming into a space where we have more than enough players that play. We have more than enough players that are competing at a high level over in Europe. We should be playing better than we are. And now there's a new expectation. And on top of that, you have a new generation of people that care about the team in a meaningful way. So I love it. However, my one fear is that I don't want us to tiptoe into the waters of Arsenal fan TV where it kind of started in that same way. Hey, we really love our team. But then they realized, ah, oh, the algorithms work when we're more negative and we make more money and we get more views when we're negative. So you start to, and it's really, listen, I've been a part of it. It is very intoxicating when you start to get a lot of traction and you get a lot of engagement by being kind of an asshole and just saying snarky stuff all the time. And I just hope we still maintain that balance of some, because the thing is, if you and I write with the Yank Report, if you write a nice balanced take and it's somewhat positive about, it doesn't get anywhere near the traction that it does if you go hot uh, and take a hot take. So that sucks. And, and, I, and I don't want us to lose that nuance and balance that I, that I think is really important, especially to fans that are just getting into the game, that the U.S. men's national team is a gateway drug into the bigger sport. And if it's just hot take after hot take after hot take, one, that's super exhausting and highly emotional, but also we want to make sure there's some balance and that these players and coaching staff are being seen through a lens that's a little bit more fair at times. Now, listen, I scream my guy, you know, I'm not in my head at some of your guys' tweets and, you know, all that stuff. Like you guys are spot on, but, but uh, also being someone who's had the experience of playing, it, it does, it does lend itself to potentially taking down a downward spiral because the guys are so visible because they are digesting what's being written because there's that thirst to want to know, does the crowd think I'm any good or whatever? It, it's, it's not to say we have to blow smoke up their butt, but you know, I still want there to be some balance is ultimately what I'm, I'm trying to get at. Yeah. It's it's an excellent point, and and it's very true in my case. I mean, if you look at the uh, my most watched videos, they are the ones where the titles are 100%. very critical. Yeah, uh, that that plays so much better than like, uh, for instance, if the U.S. just smashes, uh, I don't know, Panama or somebody like that, uh, and I do a review video and it's like everything's great. Uh, nobody watches that video, but. No. When yeah. the U.S. Uh, ties Canada one-to-one uh, -one at home and it, it doesn't look good on the field, everybody watches that video. Everybody wants to hear uh, that criticism. It's, it's, it's an interesting insight and it's an interesting thing uh, about this culture. But, you know, we, we, I mentioned uh, Jonathan Bornstein earlier as, as one of those lightning rods for criticism. You actually were on the national team at, at the same time as Bornstein. So you were in the locker room whenever uh, he was that lightning rod for criticism for, for the, uh, the U.S. Men's National Team fans. What, was that, did, were you affected by it? Did you notice it? Did, was he, could you tell that he was affected by it? I could tell a little bit that Johnny, Johnny B was uh, affected by it, and mainly because... There was a undercurrent of Johnny Bornstein is only with the team because he's Bob Bradley's guy. Bob Bradley drafted him at Chivas USA. Bob Bradley had a vested interest in, in getting him minutes or, or getting him better. And not to say that Johnny B didn't deserve it, but it just felt like he was getting more opportunities than other guys that maybe had done more at that point in their careers or, or were doing just as much as Johnny B to get those reps, get those minutes with the team. and. Then there maybe were performances where he didn't play particularly well, but then he'd still get rolled out. And I feel like he became a target, not only for the fans, but also for some of the players who thought this doesn't feel fair, right? It, it should be, it, 
in some ways you feel like the U.S. or any national team should be a little bit more democratic. How are you performing in your current form? I mean, we're already going through it with Jordan Pifok with the current team. And dude scored 19 goals and three assists in 31 games. How does he not even get a look, you know? And Daryl DK has done some things like, what is even happening? And Johnny Three Brooks was named one of the players of the week in the Bundesliga. Like, what? Why can't we call that guy in? You know, so every coach is going to have their, their ideas of who they should bring in and, and who fits into their system a little bit better and has some of that stuff that can't be measured through data and analytics all the time. Sometimes it's personal. Sometimes they just fit in better with the group. All these intangibles that I think are very important. And I, listen, I'm an intangibles guy. I was on the national team because of the intangibles I brought. I'm a good communicator. I put guys in good spots. I put fires out before they start. I think Walker Zimmerman, if I was going to liken myself to any player, I'd be kind of Walker Zimmerman-esque where I just was going to give you a good seven or an eight or out of 10 every single game, but not by being flashy, but by just being really good at the simple things out there and putting guys in good spots to make plays. Now with Johnny B, it just felt like he probably felt that as well from the group. That, that not to say there was any nepotism, let's say, with regard from Bob to, to Johnny B, but there, there was an element of that. And now if he's feeling vulnerable inside the group, and then there's a little bit of criticism outside of the group on top of that, I could see where he was feeling a little bit insecure about his position within the team. Yeah, and you, you mentioned sort of your position in the team. And, and if we look at um, the current national team setup, a lot of the guys that get heavily criticized, Sebastian Legette, Giassi's artists, these are uh, MLS-based players. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of criticism of giving opportunities to guys who are MLS players, uh, favoring guys who are uh, part of things like the Gold Cup. That was sort of your pathway into the national team. Mm-hmm. You were a Gold Cup guy, and you earned your way onto the national team there, ended up uh, making a World Cup squad. Uh, do you identify, whenever you hear the, uh, the the discourse in the U.S. men's national team soccer world, do you identify with these guys, with these MLS guys? Of course I do, of course. And I try to get ahead of that anytime I speak at length. It's a little bit harder on Twitter to always have to defend myself as a former MLS player. But... I learned a lot in my experience with the World Cup in 2006. And when we came back from that tournament, the two highest rated players were both MLS-based players at that time, Clint Dempsey and myself. And all we had was MLS experience. Now, Clint made his moves you know, right after that or not too long after that. But at that time, I stayed and it didn't really work out for me in the same way. I'm a bit of a late bloomer and got my first cap at 28 and all that good stuff. But I would say what I learned in that was Whether you played in Europe prior to that tournament, whether you played in Europe after that tournament, all that mattered was, were you ready when the whistle blew? It was such a, it was such a, you know, just a transitional moment. I'm trying to make, oh, I can't even think of the word right now because I'm not very smart, but uh, it was, it was such a big moment in my life to understand. And I think this will really influence my coaching once I get into that in a more regular basis, but you have to be ready in that moment. And yes, Claudia Reyna played in three World Cups prior to that. And John O'Brien had played. But are they ready right now? Are they ready when the whistle blows when we need them against Ghana? You know what I mean? Like that. And, and, and it didn't matter if I played in MLS at that point. It didn't matter what I was going to do afterwards. Like, are you ready in this moment? And I think that was pivotal for me. So, so when we, I just, I guess it's the casual dismissal of the MLS players that kind of drives me crazy. And, and the, cap, the camp cupcake term is so, is so, oh my God, it drives me insane because we see this and the fans see it as such a negative. There's, there's very, 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 very few national teams that have the luxury of bringing in some of your best domestic talent for a couple of weeks and identifying who can help your player pool and who can't. And we just casually dismiss that as like, nah, what a waste of time. Are you kidding me? That is like the best purpose of time we could use. 
when at, when else are we going to cuz the hard part is let's say we have a, a a world cup qualifying window i would go in there to those and i was like man i'm going to prove myself i'm going to beat out Eddie Pope and Gucci and Yewu and Greg Burhalter and Corey Gibbs like this is going to be my moment and then we go in and Bruce Arena's like yeah well this is going to be a light training on monday light training on tuesday game on wednesday light training on thursday like there's no chance to prove yourself to actually go up against these guys in a meaningful way and that january camp in particular allowed you to do that to actually win over the coaching staff over a duration of time and i think we saw that with brooks lennon actually from what i understand had a very good camp and and got called back into this first qualifying window like he's making and taking advantage of this opportunity and what i learned from my gold cup experience and so did some of the other guys matt turner miles robinson really took advantage of it is can we count on you in a tournament format can you show up and be be somebody we can that that takes accountability grows with each game we can put you in any different role. We can play you against different types of opponents. Some some teams have speed. Some teams like to keep keep the ball. Can you still adapt and be successful? And so all this dismissal of the B team and the Camp Cupcake, it's just like, what are you? This is crazy. This is such a valuable experience for our player pool and our coaching staff to get to know some of these players that actually can help us when it matters in a World Cup. And so I hope that changes, that narrative changes. But it's so far down the line of, of negativity and how bullshit this is and MLS sucks that I just, I just don't understand why we can't see it for what it is. It's a great opportunity to develop players. And, and FC Dallas is doing great. How many players have they sold over to Europe that we now count on in the national team? It's insane. So they all start, and they're going to start, as MLS starts to evolve with the academy system with MLS Next and the MLS Next Pro League. It's all going to start to come from that in a, in a more meaningful basis. I mean, the future is so incredibly bright. I've got high hopes for 2026. 2022, I just want yeah. those core players to get experience. 2026, we got to get to the semis or I'm going to be pissed. <laughs> I, I think the issue is is just the the lack of opportunities for the players who are in Europe co compared to the MLS guys sure. because there is no sure. gold cup for uh, guys like Cameron Carter Vickers guys like mm -hmm. Eric Palmer Brown guys like Julian Green uh, Luca Della Torre I mean uh, maybe in some years there might be but in this particular year you know because of the overlap with the European season they didn't get that opportunity and all of a sudden uh, you know six months later they're still kind of struggling to get into the team where guys like Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman sees that opportunity. They showed us what they can do. And, and you know, prior to the Gold Cup, I'll, I'll put my hand up and say, like, um, I thought with with the amount of talent that, that we had in Europe right now that uh, we weren't going to see those Gold Cup guys because in years past, we'd always had guys that emerged from the Gold Cup mm -hmm. and became big parts of qualifying in the World Cup. You were one of those guys. There's mm -hmm. been a number over the years. I didn't think we were going to see that as much in the future because of the uh, the talent that we're producing that's going to Europe. But here we are a, a few months in, and, and Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman are both huge parts of this team. I'd say Kellen Acosta is a pretty significant part of this team mm -hmm. as well. And these are guys that kind of uh, they kind of uh, solidified themselves, uh, earned their merit in the Gold Cup. And, and yeah, it's going to continue to be an important window uh, into this national team. I, I will jump in really quick and say, from the MLS perspective, I mean, think about these guys know they're not playing in Europe. They have a chip on their shoulder in a way that maybe the European guys don't. Now, I think the European guys, when you go over to, to, to Europe, they still don't think he can play. You know, they're American. Yeah, you're American. Even though we're, we're, I think we broke through a glass ceiling in some capacity, there's still that you got to prove it every day because they're just waiting for you to fail, right? So you still have to have that urgency and desire. And with the MLS guys, they know that too. They come into camp and there's this like, well, you don't play in Europe, you know? I mean, you are American. You've been pretty yeah. good, but... So, so 
I like that hunger that that provides, that little chip on their shoulder. They have to prove themselves. And when I look at Walker Zimmerman in particular, another reason I liken myself to him is because he's come on, even though he's been a part of the pool for a while, he knows this is probably his only chance at a World Cup because in 2026, we're probably going to move on to, you know, probably we have some young center backs that I'm excited about. And then you have, you know, Chris Richards and Miles Robinson are only going to get better and blah, blah, blah. Right. So Walker Zimmerman at, he'll be 29, I think, when this kicks off. The odds of him playing at 33 in 2026, pretty slim, just like it was for me. I was 29 in the 2006 World Cup. And he has that hunger. He's trying to be good every single thing, even in the Bosnia game, which was kind of trash. He, you could see his professionalism. You could see that he was a cut above because he was trying to push himself to a higher level. I'm going to be just as good in this game as I am in any other game that I play because that consistency matters, especially as a center back. So I use him as an example, but that, that, that that chip on your shoulder to have to prove yourself and to know that this is uh, uh, you know a gift in some ways and not 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 something to be taken for granted I think is really really important. I knew when I was on the national team that I had to make the most of every single opportunity I was in there because it would have been very easy for Bruce to be like, eh, he had that one game where he wasn't good. Let's just go with somebody else, you know. And I got picked over Greg Berhalter yeah. for the 2006 World Cup, and and he eventually came back in because Corey Gibbs got hurt. But it it was. Uh, it was a little, I mean, there, there's a really thin line between, between success and failure, and those intangibles matter as you try to build a team, and I'm happy that Bruce decided that uh, my personality won out. Let's go. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll come back to your personality versus <laughs> Greg's in a minute, but you keep talking about opportunities and moments, and uh, Tim Ream in, in the article uh, with The Athletic gave this really interesting insight, and he talked about uh, comparing the, the criticism and the toxicity that he gets uh, with the national team versus what he gets in Europe with Fulham. Uh, and, and he said, you know, it is present there with Fulham, but because they're, they play so many games uh, that things, the, the narrative changes so quickly whenever you're with your club team versus with the national team, like you said, you only get these fleeting moments, these fleeting opportunities. Uh, and if you're a starter that, that gets a lot of them, uh, that's one thing. But if, if you're a guy who's kind of on the edge of the national team and you're getting one start per window, or maybe you're getting uh, a few substitute minutes per window, uh, you're going to be judged on that. And you might not get another opportunity for another six months. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. th- these opportunities don't come uh, too quickly. So do, do you think, uh, do you agree with Tim Ream that that, that kind of contributes to, to kind of the narratives that we're seeing? I mean, there's a guy like Sebastian Legette who is still heavily criticized whatever, within U.S. men's national team circles, and he hasn't played a, a, a U.S. men's national team minute in I mean, it's been since October at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm curious to see what his future or uh, where his future lies within Greg's system because we've seen yeah. Greg make some pretty harsh decisions on a couple players. And, and the emergence of De La Torre. And yeah, of course. And I want to see more De La Torre. In, in some ways, I loved what De La Torre, just a tangent into him really quick. I love what he did against Honduras. But there's a part of me that goes, Honduras is a bit of a train wreck. And I'm glad that they can only play the, the team that's in front of them. Yeah. But I would have loved to see how he... How, what kind of influence he would have against a Canada team that's organized that that had a little bit of that momentum and and I think one of the things that I when I think about our team and I think about teams in general when we lose control of the game let's say to a Canada how quickly can we regain it and for somebody who's in the middle of midfield I want to see De La Torre how can he snatch the game back and get us back in control it might not lead to opportunities but it helps slow us down allows us to take a breath these these little things are so important as someone who's been through the experience. If you don't have a player on the field that can put their foot on the ball and slow everything down and get everybody calm, it becomes very hard to regain that and it becomes uh, chaotic. And as the longer the game goes and gets chaotic, 
the more frustrated everybody gets on the field. I remember playing against Denmark in Denmark. I came on as a sub. Okay, we're losing. We were up 1-0. Jeff Kennenheim scored back in 2009. And uh, Lord Bettner was out there. It's a fun tangent story for you. And Christian Eriksen. I mean, they, their team was stacked. So Simon Kier. And uh, they ended up scoring three goals. So it was 3-1. I come on with like 20 minutes left. And Ricardo Clark's playing in front of me in the, in the holding midfield spot. And when I get in there, he's like, dude, like, you know, he just, I'm chasing all these guys. And, 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 and he's just frustrated at that point, right? 70 minutes of chasing guys around. And I said, hey, listen, we can't collapse the lines. So if your guy runs past you into my space, you just hold your space and I'll hold mine and I'll mark 2v1. And that's just how it has to be. Because if we lose the integrity of our shape, we're screwed, which is ultimately why we got beat in a lot of different ways, because we just didn't maintain that shape. And so those types of things happen in a game where you have to somehow regain control, even if you don't have the ball, but still can kind of keep it together. And I think De La Torre has that. I can see it when I see him play with Heracles and, and, and these moments, but I, against Honduras, it's just so hard to evaluate him at that top, top level without knowing that it was against a structured team that wasn't as emotionally uh, spent, I'd say at that point as Honduras was, but conversation for another time. Now, with regard to your question, what was your question again? I always lose my train of thought. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, does the fact that uh, there's so few opportunities for yes, players good, and, yeah, great, and great, great, we great. can't jump back into games, does that affect uh, the, the amount of toxicity these players get? Sure, sure. And I love what Tim Ream had to say. And, and with regard to Tim, I was also suffering with him under Bob Bradley. So I played in the Copa America in 2007. It didn't go well for us as a team collectively. There were a player two where I could have done a little bit better, but I wasn't alone in that in terms of responsibility on certain goals that we gave up. And, and so everybody was frustrated because we, we come off a gold cup where we had that Benny Fowlhaber winner against Mexico and everybody's on a high. We go straight down to the Copa America. We don't have our necessarily a team, but still we had enough talented players to make it happen. I didn't play. Listen, I didn't get called in for 18 months after that tournament. And that hurt. Uh, and, and for very similar reasons that, that Tim was saying is if you're kind of on the cusp or the coach hasn't really bought into you, or when you did get your opportunities, you didn't get out there and like own it. It's hard to get back in. And now when you add this layer of social media pressure, which I am going to say and raise my hand, I've gone after Tim Ream a few times and the, the, it was less about Tim Ream as a player per se. I just knew what he brought to the table. Very, very similar to what people are clamoring for De La Torre. Like we've seen Legette. We know what he can do. Let's bring in somebody else that might provide a different dynamic and give him that opportunity, as you mentioned before, who didn't get the gold cup, right? Who didn't have that extended time with the national team. Couldn't really build up a rhythm or flow within this particular group of players. And so I just, it, it, it's tough. It, it's tough for that to, to happen. And I, and I relate to Tim Ream on that. And the reason I went after him was because of his age. Like I knew what he brought to the table and also he's a little bit older. I want to see what a Chris Richards can do. I wanted to see what a Miles Robinson can do. Now, the fun fact about this, when you go out there and run your mouth as a, as a player and you don't, no disrespect to the people that are hot behind uh, anonymous accounts, but, but he came at me on a CBS Sports interview where he called me out for calling him out and, and basically said, didn't think that was cool. And, and what sucks is when you're in the TV space, they're like, okay, you got 30 seconds to answer Tim Ream. And you kind of want to explain and give context and you don't really have to. So I had to kind of eat it. And fair play to him for stepping up and saying something. But uh, I think it needs to have a part two. And hopefully I'll go on his podcast soon and we can hash it out. But, but yes, I think what's happening is you have your own set of things that always existed within sports, right? You have your own personal criticism. You have the criticism that you're feeling from your teammates and coaches. 
And then you add this incredibly overwhelming tidal wave of social media and, and all these different platforms and all these different critiques. You could go to YouTube and find some people going, oh yeah, Tim Ream's pretty good. And then you go to Twitter and like, Tim Ream is trash. And you go, you know, and you just, you can find what you're looking for on Twitter and you can obviously uh, jump into the conversation very easily and all that type of stuff too. So I've backed off on Tim Ream. I think he's a good guy. I think he's doing a lot of good things. And, and uh, I, I, as I start to tap in a little bit more into what he's saying, it helps me reflect on some of the same things I was feeling when I was playing. Now, you mentioned that uh, whenever you were competing for that World Cup spot in 2006, you had a teammate who has become very relevant in the U.S. men's national team world recently, Greg Berhalter. Uh, now, I've talked to a few people who have known Greg Ber- who know Greg Berhalter personally, mm-hmm. uh, kind of behind the scenes, and uh, I, I, I get this impression that he's the amount of, of criticism and stuff that we're hearing from Greg Berhalter. He seems like a dude who doesn't necessarily need to be liked. Would you say that's fair? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's definitely fair. I, I had a chance to, we never, we didn't play with each other in the World Cup, but we did play in a friendly in Germany at the Westfalen Stadion where Borussia Dortmund play. And it was me, Corey Gibbs, and Greg Berhalter kind of playing in a back three with Steve Chirondolo, kind of wing back esque in some ways. But, you know, obviously when Germany had the ball, we settled into a back four. And in that game, you couldn't really hear each other. It was super loud. And one of those, you know, pinch me moments are like, I can't believe I'm here at the stadium playing against Germany. Unbelievable. But then we started to get our butts kicked. And at some point, you got to start communicating and getting shit done. And I never felt necessarily respected by Greg in, in my way of seeing the game. And I think that's mainly because we were competing for the same position. So I could understand why there's a, a great assault when I say that. But I remember thinking, this guy's going to be a pretty good coach because he knows how he wants to see the game. That's really important for a coach. You have an identity, an idea of how you want your team to move on both sides of the ball. And if you don't have that, it's going to be really hard, I think, to have success over the long term. And he's a good communicator. He liked to talk a lot, you know, both on and off the field about what he saw and how we could play better. So he was already kind of imprinting himself on the team in terms of how to coach. And I just thought, this guy will be a good coach because he takes a lot of the boxes. Now, I guess the big issue now is, well, do you actually agree with how he sees the game? And I think what's most frustrating for a lot of the fans is that we have this generation of talent that feels like our golden generation, and it's still, we're underperforming. And, and I think there is some truth to that, but I also think it's just not that easy as we think it is to just like, Let's just throw our 11 talented guys out there and make it all work against, against some teams that are very well organized and, and, and all that, you know, and all the like kind of nuances that, that they know they're not as good as we are talent wise, but they're a little bit more organized and that's how they're going to try to beat us. So there's this commitment to that discipline of team shape that make it hard for them to break down. And if we don't have ideas or or don't have a, and I remember uh, Christian Pulisic said this after the Canada game and we drew one, one, we didn't really have any ideas after plan a. And that made me concerned. So when I hear that type of stuff, then I start to, what is Greg telling the guys? You know, when we get into the attacking third, why aren't we being more decisive? Why are we trying to be perfect all the time? Sometimes it's okay to just to, and I think Timo has done a better job of this recently, of just getting to the end line and crossing it and, and just having numbers in the box. There's nothing wrong with that. And if anything, we see that it leads to goals against El Salvador with Anthony Robinson, just, just being in good spots to make plays. That's okay, too. We don't have to be goddamn Barcelona from 2009 all the time. And and even though I like that that's where we would like to be, 
there's still some times where you just have to just take what other teams give you. And I don't know if we always do that, though. I feel like Greg has evolved quite a bit in this this whole qualifying campaign and gotten away from. Remember when we possess, tried to possess against Mexico and New York? I was oh, there yeah. at that game. And we lost 3-0 and got our asses kicked. I was like, why is Zach Steffen touching the ball more than our number 10, Christian Pulisic? That pisses me off. So I'm glad that we've gotten away from that and that narrative and the, the type of crap he would give us after, after uh, in press conferences afterwards. But he does have a tendency to still like, what? Like after the Canada game, wow, that was the best we've ever played and not got points. So I'm like, what are you even talking about, dude? But I, uh, there's still a lot of progress that I'm seeing. And now it's just a matter of, of him obviously getting us to the finish line of qualifying. And then building the best team based on form and personalities heading into the to the World Cup in December. There's so many different uh, personality types that have been successful as coaches, and, and there are guys who were very media friendly. Like I remember Jurgen Klinsmann was, you know, he was doing an interview with ESPN like every other week, and and there's so many uh, great quotes from Jurgen Klinsmann era about uh, American soccer and just the development and everything uh, that that. Under the sun included the Greg Berhalter era, despite being, you know, the information era where, where we have social media and all these outlets and we have all these people talking about the game. He doesn't really do interviews. He doesn't really put himself out there. You get the post game press conferences. You might get a piece by like Sports Illustrator or something like that once every few months. Uh, and then you get these uh, these podcasts that he does with Bobby Warshaw, and, and what I they're they're great by the way they're great listens. Uh, but what I notice is like it, it seems like he has his um, he he cares a lot about the group and he cares a lot about mm-hmm. what's going internally with the team, but he does not seem to care at all about anything else or anything outside of that and whatever the fan base you know that they who cares. It's tough. I, I think that uh, when you're a player, and I think if you're going to reach your peak as a player, you got to play to your strengths. And I think Greg Berhalter, as a manager, has to do the same thing. Putting yourself out there to appease a fan base, you know, and in some ways, he's trying to show more personality. I think it's clear that they've said, hey, can you show more personality? Now he's wearing, you know, limited edition Jordans, and yeah. he's taking selfies with fans. He's trying to be a little bit more cheeky i think in some press conferences and and so i think there is some energy around him trying to lighten up a bit uh publicly but knowing what i know about him he just loves talking about the game and if he i think if he knows and i'm speculating here but if he knows he's going to go into an interview where it's going to be some gotcha journalism or if they're going to try to tee him up or set him up to to say something he's going to regret i don't think he even wants to enter into those waters but if he's going to go on bobby warshaw who is very x's and o's and really just likes to talk the tactics, then I can understand why he feels safe in that capacity. He's come on CBS Sports HQ a few times with us and our team, and that's been enlightening as well, but he knows he's also going to be protected because we're just going to ask him questions about the team uh, that, that almost refrain more to you know how guys are doing. It's pretty safe, all things considered. And, and not to say that I can't ask a hard question, but, but I always kind of get sandwiched in and I don't try to go too off base because... I do think it's important the fans have a voice and that he they feel listened to, but but uh, I can understand why he maybe doesn't say I'm going to do the Yank Report podcast. You know, <laughs> not to say that you would stitch him up, but I think that what if you got a guest like Greg Berhalter, you have a lot of pressure to like, dude, ask him the hard questions. What Sebastian Legette? Like he sucks, bro. Like why is he? You know, and and what do you? Th- I mean, we could all guess what Greg's going to say. Well, I value Sebastian Legette. I think he provides something to the group that maybe others can't see. And he's somebody I can trust. He knows my system quite well. And then he's going to move on. And you're going to be like, okay, he didn't answer, really answer yeah, my question exactly. the way that we want it. 
So, so he's never going to give you what you want. You're asking the impossible from not just him, but any manager. If you try to stitch up Tata Martino down in Mexico, when they ask about Chicharito, he just says, yeah, he's, he's a, he's a good player, but uh, I like the group that I have. And then they're like, okay, <laughs> you know, what are you going to say? There's nothing you can say. So it, it's, it's, uh, it's tough. I think that they're asking for something that's just not possible. Yeah, and to be fair to Bobby Warshaw on his podcast, he does ask all those questions that everybody wants asked. I mean, he asked about uh, the U.S.'s ability to break down a low block. He asked mm-hmm. about um, his Greg's comments after the Canada game where he said it was a dominant performance. All these mm, things. I, need, that, I haven't listened to that version. I got to yeah, listen to that new one, yeah. All these things that the fans have been talking about, Bobby does ask, and you kind of got to live with the um, – live with the answers that he gives and to Greg's credit he does tend to give long uh detailed answers though they're not always as satisfying to the fans as we (laughs) might want but you bring up an interesting point whenever you talk about Greg coming on to CBS and kind of uh being in a situation where it's not like you can go after him or anything like that there are a lot of fans out there who uh validate their criticism and their toxicity at times with this idea that it is uh ultimately making the team better that it is uh adding pressure and that uh, you know, if you call out these players, it's going to put more pressure on U.S. soccer and, and lead to a better mm-hmm. national team. They point to uh, nations like Brazil, nations like England, even nations like Mexico, who have these intense, intense, passionate fan bases that uh, are, are certainly on the far end of the spectrum whenever it comes to, uh, to let's say, toxicity towards the national team. Uh, you've been a player. You, you're now a coach. Uh, and you're certainly a member of the media. Uh, do you think that uh, that that toxicity, that um, that uh, aggressiveness towards ag- uh, having an aggressive media, having an aggressive fan base, uh, contributes positively to uh, players' careers and to ultimately to the performance of a national team? Oh, that's a good question. I ultimately will say yes. I do think it helps. I think that there is this, you know, this value of you need to perform. And the sink or swim mentality, which you have to have, right? I mean, that's what we've been asking for in some ways from from our domestic league. We don't have enough sink or swim games where we need to figure out who can handle the pressure and who can't. And it just feels a little bit safe. And now, okay, if if it's not going to exist in our system because there's no promotion relegation or whatever, then we're going to create it with our aggressive fan base. You know, we're going to hold these people accountable. I got no problem with that. I have had conversations with people in the past where do you think England's fan base has actually hurt the English national team because it's so ridiculously over the top and because it feels so soap opera-esque in, in, in a lot of different ways where they're, they're following the players' every move in the daily papers and, and, you know, Wayne Rooney's out there sleeping with grandmas and all that stuff, which, all right, that's a conversation for another time. But, but the fact that that's, that's like front-page news, it's not something that our players... Are, are involved with uh, currently. And then maybe we'll get there at some point, especially as we host the 2026 World Cup. But, but I do think that you having to answer for your performances is important, that you have to take on ownership and accountability because in some ways there's been a lot of pointing the finger of, ah, it wasn't me, it was this, it was that, it was cold, it was snowy, it was, you know, whatever. And, and, and I think that because of the pressure and because of the aggressive nature of some people that want answers immediately, it does force Greg to do podcasts. It does force him to go out there and explain himself a little bit. Maybe he's going on to safe, quote unquote, platforms, going with Bobby Warshaw or, or going on you know, CBS or whatever it may be. But we're seeing his face. He's got to answer some questions. And even if he's playing it safe with his answers, at least he knows and is feeling a little bit of, 
hey, we need some answers for how we're performing. We need to know why we can't create opportunities in the attacking third, even though we have some of the best attacking talent we've ever had. Like, why is that possible? Why can't we develop a number nine, which probably is a little bit bigger than just him as coach, but why don't we have a number nine through the system that, or more, multiple number nines that we can count on to actually be a threat game in and game out? And and, and why do we play Jossie Zardes against Canada? Like, why? Why would we start him in that particular instance? And I know he answered it, and and it was... I don't know if it was ultimately satisfying, but but I could build a narrative around what he was saying, and he could too, obviously. Otherwise, he wouldn't have started him. But if that's the case, then we're all thinking, why not DK or why not Jordan Pifok, who who well, DK's hurt at the moment, but Pifok is on in good form and could provide something similar to Zardis, but he actually has been hitting the back of the net and is in season. So there's all these things that you want to ask him and have these follow-ups, and and uh, I'm glad Bobby Warshaw got the opportunity uh, to do that. I'm looking forward to listening to that podcast. I want to kind of shift gears here now. I mean, I got the opportunity to talk to a former national team player, so there's always a lot of fun questions to ask. Uh, the first one is, is one that I asked Alexi Lawless whenever I had him on, um, and, and it's a, a report came out saying that soccer has now passed hockey as the fourth most popular sport in America. Uh, as someone such as yourself who has dedicated your life to this sport, uh, a guy that I'm sure whenever you were growing up playing soccer and dreamed of being a professional soccer player, uh, there was a lot of instances where people were like, why are you doing this? You know, <laughs> Soccer is not an American sport. Nobody cares about this sport. Uh, how do you feel seeing the growth of the sport in this country? Is, is there some validation there? Is there? Uh, uh, how does it feel to be a part of uh, building towards that? Um, how, how does it feel to see the, the growth of the sport in this country? Uh, it's unbelievable. I, I think just to give everybody uh, a personal example, when I played for the San Jose Clash before they were the earthquakes back in 99, my rookie year, we had to go to San Jose State, and they built this makeshift locker room for us, which I don't know. It wasn't great, but they wouldn't even let us train on their fields at the college. We had to drive, no joke, over 30 minutes down to Morgan Hill where a youth academy system was set up, which it was crazy. And then you could either go back afterwards and shower at this makeshift locker room or you could just go home. And most people are like, I'm just going to go home. So you have to take off all your stuff, put it in the trunk. Sometimes the equipment manager would be like, hey, man, you got to wash that yourself if you don't want to go all the way back to the thing. So you're washing your own clothes. I made $24,000, not a week. But a year, I made $800.14 every two weeks as a professional athlete in, in Major League Soccer my rookie year, which is insane because it's like David Beckham makes that like millisecond, you know? So, so it, it has come so far. And the fact that we're building not only amazing stadiums, but also these amazing training facilities. And, and actually, I, I had a conversation with somebody at MLS who was kind of working on the MLS Next stuff. And I said, what took you guys so long? Like, why would you, it's a billion dollar industry to uh, use soccer in this country. Why were you not dipping your toes into this? You just think that other people were going to help build the players for you. And, and I just thought that that took them a while to get into and to build a model, to have an infrastructure that could help really promote that. And it took until Don Garber said, what, four years ago at the State of the Union at the end of the season, we're a selling league now. I remember when he said that, I was like, whoa, that is a watershed moment where now the perception's changing. And not only that from, from us looking outwards to South America and Europe, but also from Europe and South America, looking inwards at us going, now their players are going to be available. Now we can actually start to scout here in a meaningful way because the people that run MLS aren't going to be so obtuse with transfer fees and everything's going to be a little bit more balanced. And that's what we're starting to see. And now we feel like we're part of the global conversation. So there's that element of it. Obviously the infrastructure has gotten a lot more sophisticated and mature and is being treated more professionally. The, the tra uh, players are being tr treated more professionally. 
So all of that's incredible. And it's incredible to see. Now, I grew up in Southern California where, well, I grew up when MLS didn't exist. So there was no professional soccer league. I grew up when I was kind of really of age. It was after NASL had folded and MLS began. So there's really nothing to aspire to. I just went to UCLA soccer games. That was my, my fix. And I'd see Ziggy Schmidt as the coach and Brad Friedel and goal and Kobe Jones and Joe Max Moore. Like those guys were my heroes. I wanted to always play at UCLA and I did end up doing that. And I won the national championship, by the way, flex of the day. And so, so that was very cool for me. But then once I was a senior, MLS had been about a year or two in and that became a little bit more of a reality. So I never felt like anybody was squashing my dreams in Southern Cal. Like a ton of players were playing. It was a sport that was embraced in a lot of different ways that maybe let's say in Boise, Idaho, it's not, you know, and I think they probably get more of a pushback there. But in the, the states that had kind of year round, it, when, and there was a time, honestly, where we could play, if we were in the national team, you could have players from California versus the rest of the country. And we would win and we'd always talk so much trash because uh, we're like, we produce the best players in the state. But if you have the benefit of playing year round, you'll see that a lot of our national team player pool for a long time was California, Texas and Florida based. Yeah, absolutely. And you've become a, a direct part of the uh, of the development of soccer in this country because you're now a head coach, head coach of the San Francisco Glens. And I believe it's a USL2 right. side, right? Yeah. So what has that experience been like? What are your ambitions as far as coaching? Are, are you happy to work with the, uh, the, the soccer at that level? Are you looking to move up <laughs> in the coaching ranks? What is the, what is the future the hold for you I as love far it. as coaching? So, I feel like... Just to start on the media side first, after I retired, I went straight into media and I haven't looked back and it continued to grow and, and kind of develop and mature in different platforms. I remember Kick, Kick TV. TV. I Shout remember, out, baby. Uh, we loved yeah, Kick TV. We, were, we were, didn't know what we were doing. And I think that was the best part. We were trying to make it up as we go. And I think we were really ahead of it. I mean, if they didn't shut down Kick TV, imagine how big we would be now. It, it would be insane. Yeah, yeah it and, really and would. And that makes me sad that they didn't have the foresight to, even though we were telling them, stay with it. They didn't have the foresight to, to, to see it out. And so conversation for another time. But it's been amazing, amazing experience. And for me to give up all everything I've built up over the last 10 or 11 years in this space, right before the 2026 World Cup, you know, feels a little bit like just see it through that. And then maybe we can jump into coaching in a more meaningful way. I'm working on getting my A license right now. I have my B at U.S. Soccer. And uh, that's fun. I love kind of being in the room and talking coaching with a whole bunch of other like-minded and hungry individuals to make the game better in this country, to, to continue to learn at, and get better at their craft. So that's very cool. Now with the Glens, USL League Two season is like two and a half months long. So it fits in pretty well with my uh, media schedule and it allows me to, to get in there. Now, one of the reasons I wanted to do it, not only to kind of support locally, which I think is important, I live uh, just north of San Francisco, is to also see the game from this level. So when I played with the MLS, I could see it, right? And then the national team, I can see everything from the top down. But what does it look like? What's the struggle look like from a USL League Two team? There's 110 teams in the USL League Two. And what, what kind of infrastructure do they have? I just almost wanted to learn um, about the little things like the scouting and the budgets and how viable it really actually was to give these kids that are in college or just out of college. I mean, some of them are still in high school. We have some very talented young players. And giving them that opportunity to cut their teeth in a, so, as, as professional of an environment as possible. And then from there, if I identify a player, can I move them up the ladder? And what I learned was I had a player that was very good for us, very good in transition, like a number eight, box to box. And when he had the game, as I mentioned before, the game slowed down. And we could actually, and why I say this too, and I love these types of players, when the game slows down, it actually allows your team 
to create numerical advantages. If you're playing a thousand miles an hour all the time, the game never slows down enough for you to actually bring in the outside back to join the other player to create a triangle out wide or to have a supporting player in midfield to maybe make that late run that number nine checks in and you can play that guy that's running up over the top. Like you have to slow the game down for these things to develop. But if you're playing hundred miles an hour all the time, well, this player had that. So our, our season ends, he wants to take it up and go to the USL championship. And I said, all right, well, just tell me some teams you're interested in. So I get the USL email list and all the coach. I'm like, oh God, I know that coach. And I know that technical director. I, I mean, I have a touchstone to a lot. I'm like, oh, cool. I think I can help this player. So I go to this player. And, and we, I get him a tryout at Birmingham City with, with Tommy Sohn and Jay Heaps is there and, and great experience. And I tell him, hey, how fit are you? And he goes, oh, I'm fit. I'm fit. I'm good. I'm good. I'm good. I'm like, listen, I'm not throwing this whole like American bullshit. You got to be the fastest, strongest guy out there. I'm not saying that that's I'm not coming from that angle. My angle is you need to be fit enough because you're going to be chasing the ball a lot when you go up a couple levels here. And, and you need to have the energy to be able to showcase what you're good at. But if you're chasing the ball all over the place and you're getting art, you know, somebody they're asking you to play in a space and you have to do and be disciplined and have good habits in your position and you're dead and you're dead tired, you're not going to be able to show off what you're good at. And he goes, no, 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 coach. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. So seven to 10 days later, I get a call from Tommy. He goes, yeah, he just in small sided. He's, he's good. He's okay. But when we go out to 11, 11, he's just, He's just not good enough. He's not fit enough. He's not. And, and, and when people say not fit enough, I know what he means. It's not because, you know, he, he, he's not fast enough. He, he could be all those things, but he just gets tired too quickly for him to actually perform and help the team. So it's these little things along the way that, and I was so crushed for him. And I actually never heard from that player again. I tried to help him find another team. And I think he was so crushed, you know? And so you're trying to help these, these players establish their dream. And what I learned through this experience to actually get back to your question was that these guys don't know how to be professionals. And one of my job, one of my jobs is, is teaching these guys how to attack each day and try to actually get better and get better at the craft each day. And, and so that was, that was tough for me because honestly, one of my talents was commitment. Like that was one of my biggest talents was commitment. And when I see that these guys talk about wanting to become pros, but don't show the necessary commitment to make that happen, it was actually really hard for me to relate to them. And I need to get better at that as a coach. So I learned a ton in a very short period of time. I'm excited about this upcoming season. I'm going to kind of get back into more of assistant coach. Cause I don't have the time with some media stuff. That's now kind of ramped up and be more of a technical director for the club. But we have uh, my assistant Gabe Sosito. He's going to take over and I'll help help out when I can, but uh, it's an incredible experience. And, and also another thing I learned through that is this is really important. Tommy Stone. I, I, I love Tommy. He had a great conversation with him. And I said, hey, man, how do you guys scout at Birmingham City? Like, there's so many talented players. And he's like, we don't, you know, we have so like a scout, you know, a couple people that we get that we trust in, in, in the local area and then maybe a little bit broader. And, and he's like, but ultimately what we do is we try to get the guys that fall out of MLS and we sign them because that's already they've already kind of done the work for us. They've identified talent that it was good enough to at least be looked at MLS and we try to get them. And I'm like, you're not looking from the bottom up. You know, he's like, we don't really have the time or the staff to do that. And I found that to be really fascinating because there are a lot of talented players that aren't getting looks. And, and uh, with all due respect to Birmingham City, I get why they have the model that they do. And it makes a lot of sense for them to, to get the, ki the kids to trickle out of MLS that don't make it. But that bums me out a little bit. And that was, that was the necessary information that I needed to know from this experience is how do we start to change that? How do we start to get more credibility for these younger players. Now MLS has kind of jumped in and said, we got it covered. We're going MLS next. 
pro or whatever. And so that's going to solve some of those problems, I think. But for the USL, and they're going to do their own stuff, their own youth academy. You know, it's uh, anyway, ultimately, the long story short, we're going to get so much better at this game very quickly. I'm super excited about the future. Man, there's so many great insights in that answer. There's so many things I want to talk about. I mean, one it. thing that you, uh, <laughs> well, I want to move on. We're kind of coming to the end, so I want to let you go. But It never uh, ends. It never ends. <laughs> one thing that you mentioned is is the commitment. And I always think about that whenever I think about these players that have reached the highest level of the game, guys like Christian Pulisic. Tyler Adams, Weston McKinney, and just the kind of challenges that these players have taken on. I mean, Weston McKinney going from a really poor Schalke side to, to, to Juventus. I mean, a, a team with a bunch of players that had just won the World Cup, a team that uh, had Cristiano Ronaldo, a team that has all these icons of the game. Christian Pulisic did the exact same thing. I mean, uh, just the the these guys are not weak individuals. These guys are not normal human beings. I mean, they're they're different kind of person in order to uh, take on these challenges and rise to the occasion the way they've done. Now, I do want to move on because we've talked about you as a player. We've talked about you as a broadcaster. We've talked about you as a coach. I want to go full circle. I want to talk to you as, as a fan, as, as a soccer fan. And Wikipedia says that you are a <laughs> Newcastle fan. Is that oh, true? Oh, yeah, that's true. That's true. I'm crying tears of oil these days. It's amazing. Yeah, and that's what I want to talk to you about. I mean, the the game has uh has gotten to the point where if you want to win the Champions League, and if we looked at who was in the Champions League last year or in the Final Four last year, uh, it, it looks like you've pretty much got to have uh like a oil state money in order to compete. I mean, you have Roman Abramovich with the Russian connections. Uh, of course, you have PSG, you have Man City, uh, and Newcastle is the new kid on the block, and they have the most money of them all, but also coming with it is is a lot of moral questions, is a lot of, uh, is a lot of difficult things to kind of unpack. And, and I wonder, as a soccer fan, as a guy who was a supporter of Newcastle, prior to the new ownership coming on. How do you feel about this whole thing? I mean, there's excitement that there's going to be new players and, sure. and money coming into the club. The, the team is going to be competing at a higher level than they have, ever have before. But do you give something up in order to get that? And 100%. how do you feel about soccer being kind of up for sale for uh, the, the sports washing, as they call it? Uh, it, it, that's sort of become the norm now. No, it has. It's a bit disappointing. I think that uh, FIFA really sold their soul when they gave it to Qatar in 2022. I think there's a lot to look at there. I don't really even want to go to the particular World Cup, which feels bad because not only did I play in one, but I went as a fan in 2014, uh, supporting the U.S., but traveling all over Brazil and, and, and creating some really incredible life experiences being at that event. I didn't go to the one in Russia either, even though. I know. Let's be honest. I think every country has their own human rights violations. I've read some incredible books recently about the imperialism of the U.S. and we we might be the worst. Uh, we do a very good job of sport washing ourselves over here, and so it's so. I guess it just depends on how how far you want to go. Now, I don't feel good about it and the human rights violations that the, the new ownership group has on their hands with Newcastle, um, and I'm not going to try to defend that by any stretch of the imagination. I wish that money came from somebody else. I'd like to think that and maybe this is me trying to validate my my reasoning that I can just kind of focus on the sport of Newcastle and, and what they're providing there as opposed to the ownership group, which is gets really heavy. If you're a billionaire of some sort, I'd like to think you got there somehow on the backs of people that you probably should have taken better care of. Um, you know, if we're if you know, and then I just again, it just feels weird. Like my, you know, my shoes probably made by some nine year old somewhere, you know, the Apple Watch, uh, our phones, you know, it's how far down the rabbit hole do you want to go? And and 
And this is right in your face because they are definitely sport washing. And, and again, I, I don't feel good about it. And it's really hard as a fan to know what to do. And so it becomes, it becomes tough. And so it's just become easier at this point after having many conversations with others about this particular question uh, to, to just like, we got Bruno Guimaraes, everybody. He's going to be awesome for us, you know, and kind of, and you just kind of turn a blind eye to the, the kind of shitty stuff that's going on uh, behind, the, behind the scenes or even how these people got their money and how they continue to have a lot of power and influence. And, and uh, yeah, I guess I'm still in conflict, to be honest about it. And, and um, you know, I'm glass half full kind of guy. I try to stay positive. And is there an opportunity for them to make lives better through this investment? Yes, there is. They can help not only develop the club, but the surrounding areas and the community and the youth academy and you know, but but is that enough to make up for all the other things? No, it's not. And, and I don't know. It's it's hard. That's a hard question. And it's not one I feel very comfortable with. And as you can see, I'm tap dancing, baby. I am tap dancing all over this one. <laughs> well, you're not the only one, man. I mean, myself watching, you know, I watched the Champions League yesterday and I, I watched Chelsea a lot because ballistics there. And it's yeah. always in sort of in the back of your mind. I try to get lost in that. But every now and then they show like an image of Roman Abramovich. And like, I understand where his money came from. And I understand where it continues to come from. I understand the politics in that particular country. And it is it is kind of a queasy feeling. And, you know, for mm -hmm. the U.S., I, I always hear about American sports are all about money. You know, it's it's so corporate and all that. Uh, but I, I do appreciate that, at least in, in American sports, there are mechanisms to get owners out that have uh, gone against uh, mm -hmm. the, the, the mm -hmm. policies of the league. I mean, we saw it. Uh, the Clippers were sold recently because of some issues with the ownership. Mm -hmm. The mm -hmm. Carolina Panthers were sold recently because of some issues with the ownership. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I... I, I wonder what happens with Newcastle, with Manchester City, with PSG. If some type of global thing occurs, is there a mechanism to get these owners out? I don't think there what, is. Who, well, just, who has the jurisdiction there? Is it, is it the FA? Is it UEFA? Is it FIFA? I mean, who? that's where I think, too, it gets a little gray as to who actually is in charge. Who's the one that's holding these, these clubs accountable? Obviously, the FA had to allow this ownership group to even get in, and uh, PIF is the, the acronym for them. I mean, that... They had to do something. They had to grease some wheels to, to, to get in. I think that, from what I understand, the Premier League was very reluctant to have another Manchester City kind of come in and, and have so much money that it felt a little unfair to everybody else. And I wonder how those players feel, you know, playing for yeah. a state-owned slash oil-owned yeah. company. You know, you're like, well, I'm making 400K. A week. Yeah, you know what? It's fine. <laughs> it's fine. I'm making 400K a week. You know, I don't know. I don't know. I mean, at some point, you'd want to... And even Pep Guardiola, who's considered you know, someone who I think sees the game in, in a really fascinating way and obviously one of the best managers in the world. And he seems like a guy who sees the game as being inclusive and not exclusive, yet he spends probably more money on players than anybody else. And he's being backed by a conglomerate, oil conglomerate that has human rights violations on their hands. And, and it just like, it almost, by them being involved, it almost allows you to accept it you know i guess it gets back into the sport washing or under the umbrella of sport washing so it's uh i don't know it's a sad state of affairs and i wish there was a mechanism to your point that that allowed these these uh things or these owners to be held accountable in a way and they tried with the financial fair play but we all know that was a joke yeah. so i don't know yeah sort of ending on a kind of a low note but i think uh, it's such go. an interesting wah, wah, discussion wah. no it is and, it yeah, is of course uh, it's, it's, <laughs> it's something that i think about well, are you gonna go to the world cup are you going to the world league? cup uh, I don't have any plans to go to the World Cup right now, but if there's any sponsors is it financial out there listening, or moral? financial uh, or moral? 
I, I own a business, so it's tough for me to get out, um, uh, get, get away for a long period same. of time. But I yeah, I, I would have some conflicts about that. I mean, it is, yeah, it's, it, it's something that's going to be in the back of my mind whenever I'm watching the World Cup. Uh, but Jimmy, I, I got to let you go, man. You, you, you've been very generous with your time. So uh, great I conversation. Go, I appreciate you having me. And uh, yeah, anytime I'm, I'm willing to come on for sure. Absolutely, man. Thank you so much. I, I, I want to give you the opportunity to give, uh, give, let everybody know where they can find your content, where they can see more of you. Well, if they've made it this far, they uh, can follow me on Twitter, Instagram, at Jimmy Conrad. I've actually slowed down on social media a little bit. Uh, I think I go through bouts of burnout, I'm sure, like everybody else, where you feel like you're just kind of forcing a hot take just to force it. Absolutely. That said, that said, I uh, would always appreciate the support. And then uh, I signed a contract with Twitch. So Twitch is a more of a video game type platform, but they want to get into sports. And I have a one-year partner deal with them. So I'm just streaming sports. So any big games that are happening, you want to watch the game with a cool community, come find me on Twitch, twitch.tv slash Jimmy Conrad. It's a lot of fun. And I'm a bit of like a capo. You know, I've got my drums. I got my bullhorn. And we have a lot of fun to get after it as we watch the biggest games. I also have a daily show that I do uh, the biggest news uh, of the day. I got one or two hours every day. I just get on there and have some fun. And then uh, you can find me on CBS Sports HQ doing Champions League, Europa League, NWSL, Serie A coverage. And uh, we have some big plans to potentially do something U.S. men's national team related in the future. So I'm excited about that. So, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of all over the place. But uh, I appreciate your support if anybody wants to give it. Absolutely, man. And I do appreciate you as a pioneer on uh, oh, in a man. lot of ways uh, uh, on wow. YouTube, on Twitch. And, You're supposed and to flatter of... me before this whole thing starts, not after. <laughs> I like to do it at the end. <laughs> okay. yeah. uh, so, Jimmy, th- thank you for everything you do, your enthusiasm and your humor and, and your insights that you bring to the game. Uh, guys, thank you so much for watching. If you're still like Jimmy said, if you're still watching at this point <laughs> and you haven't subscribed, if you we haven't clicked the like button. Yeah. Make sure you do that, guys. Uh, Jimmy, thank you so much for coming on. I wanted to mention just right before we head out, you were named the ninth best center back of all time in MLS. Just yeah. Well, you to- know what? What's what's interesting is that that the top eight made the top twenty-five of all time, and somehow I got squeezed out. Unacceptable. Hey, man. Unacceptable. I'm glad you were on the list. Uh, anyway. I, I, I will say that too. Also, I want to throw out there that I got captain. I just looked this up. Or somebody looked it up for me, but I've been captain five times for the U.S. Men's National Team. Only 30 players have ever done that. So I'll take that because I think that's pretty goddamn cool, especially because I only had 27 caps. So like my yeah. captain, my captain to cap ratio is pretty sick. Thanks and for having me, everybody. the conversation is something I'm super interested in, and I'd, I'd love to talk to you about that sure. in the future. But we have run out of time, guys. Thank you so much. <laughs> for Jimmy Conrad, my name is Sam, and this is the Yank Report brought to you by Bet Online. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.